I'm Matthew Cochran, a lead advisor at Stubbin Investing, where it is our mission to empower you to invest in your future. We do that by providing monthly stock recommendations to our premium members and educational content that is freely available to everyone. Listeners, today I am very excited to introduce Daniel Joshua Rubin, the author of the newly published book, 27 Essential Principles of Story. He is an experienced writer who has written for mediums such as TV, theater, he has written online articles, and he's taught writing courses at many universities, which begs the question, what is he doing on an investment podcast? Well, as it so happens, I have talked with Daniel first on investment discussion boards and now on Twitter, mostly through DMs for years. And what he manages to keep secret from many people is how savvy of an investor he is. And today you are in store for a special treat. We're going to discuss how Daniel applies the principles of narrative, of story, to his investment process. And I think it's going to be a little bit of a different show. I think it's going to be fun. So let's get started. Daniel, welcome to the show. Hey, Matt. Thanks a lot for having me. I'm really excited to talk about this. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Daniel, I'm going to ask our listeners to indulge us for just a couple of minutes. And I promise, listeners, we're going to keep this part quick. But before we get to investing, let's quickly discuss your book, 27 Essential Principles of Story. I have uh, read it cover to cover. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Why don't you give us a quick summary of the book and why you thought it was necessary to write it? Sure. Uh, you know, it's funny. From an investing standpoint, I'm a, I'm a very big Charlie Munger fan. I love his plain spoken, um, his plain spoken principles, his mental models, and I realized I had a kind of confluence of events where I was working in um, agricultural risk management for a little bit, and I was a big fan of UFC, and I have a lot of friends who are musicians, and all these things kind of came together where I realized that the best people in anything, in, in whatever they do, whether it's martial arts or writing or investing or, or building chairs or being a carpenter, they have fundamental principles that they stick to. And Charlie Munger has talked a lot about how when you are just not stupid, that's better than being brilliant. When you get all the fundamentals right, he talks about how in an investment, you get what he calls a Lollapalooza effect, where the, the sum, um, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. And I, I had taken a break from writing and I had a regular nine to five job and I started getting the passion to write again so I kept a notebook of principles, just the most fundamental basic principles. And I was raised in New York and I lived in LA, but now I'm a humble Midwesterner. And I really do think there's a lot of truth to the idea that Midwestern people are very plain spoken, have a lot of humility, don't, they're not ostentatious. And I wanted to strip all the jargon out of the language of teaching story. You know, there's a lot of terms that, that they use in storytelling, like crisis and climax and inciting incident. And these terms that don't necessarily articulate what the thing is. So I built this notebook of simple, plain English principles. And it was just for me to help my writing. But as I started developing it, I started thinking, these are this is pretty good. Like this would be a good foundation for a school. And I, I thought I'd self-publish maybe a little book to go with my my, I have a writing studio in Evanston because I, I'd rather teach it my way than be part of a big university. And I think I could do it a lot cheaper. So anyway, 
But sure enough, because I had no intentions of being a big shot with this, I happened to call an agent who's a big agent who's who represented a friend of mine who wrote a great book called The uh, Personal MBA. And sure enough, she loved the, the book and signed me right away and then sold the book. And I know had I desperately wanted to sell the book, I never would have sold the book. But the, somehow, I don't know how the universe works that way. But anyway, so I just wanted to make it as simple as possible and get back to the basics that Aristotle was talking about 2,500 years ago, plot, character, theme, dialogue, setting. And that, and that, that's what I did. And well, you did a great job. I've read lots of books about writing uh, because I want to be a clear, effective writer. And, you know, they're usually good, but most of them, they're very dry. But this wasn't at all. You, because you included examples, uh, like you drew from movies and classic books to comic books to rap songs. And it just really enlivened the book. Uh, how did you come up with all the examples in the book? And, and maybe like, give us an example of one of your favorites. Sure. Um, oh my God, I, I'm not joking around. The, the book took really about four years. And one of my problems in my career was that I wanted to do too many different things. And one of the things we're going to talk about a lot today is the power of focus. Um, but I um, got my brain just shocked. You asked me that question again. <laughs> Sorry, I'm going around. No, just like maybe like one of your favorite examples of like, oh, uh, yeah. like the stories you included in your chapters, because oh. every single chapter, I mean, you had 27 principles and every, so there's, I think there's 27 chapters and every single chapter had a different example of a story. Like, and Absolutely. it was like from Shakespeare to South Park to Eminem, you know, to, right. to, uh, Netflix shows. Uh, yeah. what, what was maybe like your favorite example of a story you included? It's funny, man. That's like asking me which kid I love the best. But in, <laughs> in a lot of ways, I think that my favorite one is probably a, a principle called write characters to the top of their intelligence. And again, what I want to do is, is kind of get to like Elon Musk talks a lot about first principles, like the most very basic foundational things you need. Like if you're building a car, you don't necessarily have to have a steering wheel. You have to have a mechanism to steer the car. So the first principle is you need steering. So like one of my favorite first principles of writing is you absolutely have to write characters to the top of their intelligence. So I broke down the song Stan, like Eminem's song Stan. It's an iconic song. A Stan is an, is an archetype of the obsessed fan. And when you break that song down line by line, you see that every single thing Stan does is, is not only intelligent, it's kind of brilliant. And he really attacks the mind of Eminem through the song. So I think that, that when you're telling a story, if every single character is at the top of their game, you're, you're, you're objectively, factually going to have a much, much better story except the thing is it forces you to be a much better writer. You know, you got to dig deep to make sure everyone's at the top of their game. So I'd say that was a really good one. That, 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 a couple of things there, but like one of the things, like I've always, uh, I enjoy writing um, yeah. and ob obviously, and like one of the things I've always like thought in the back of my head is like one day I'm going to write, maybe I'll try to write a novel or something like that. You know, like years in the future, I'll just try it. And like reading your book, I'm like, this is a lot harder then I was kind of giving it credit for, like coming up with our story. And, uh, you know, it made me appreciate more the process that goes into writing a great story. Um, you know, 
Daniel, why is the concept of story so important to us as humans, as people? Like, why is narrative so essential to the human experience? Sure. There, there's two, two things had a huge impact on me about this as I was developing the book. Like, I knew story was critically important. But to be honest, at, through the course of writing a book, it, it went exponentially higher than I ever thought. So E.O. Wilson, a famous biologist, has a, an essay called The Power of Story. And what he talks about is as a human being, as you move through the world, you are, you, you're processing so many sights and sounds and images and feelings and things that, that if you couldn't form narratives, you couldn't make sense of what's going on. And then the book Sapiens, A Brief History of Humankind by Yuval Hariri, that just blew me away because what he talks about is if you look at companies, nations, um, marriages, religions, the best, the stories that we tell are, are not necessarily provable objective facts. They're kind of things we agree to in a sense that like my wife and I are married. You know, we have a certificate, it says we're married. But it, it's not necessarily an objective fact. Like if tomorrow she wakes up and goes, you know, we're actually not married, then we're not married anymore. Or if we, if tomorrow they change the borders between Canada and America, well, then you know, we then the nation changes. You know, if they, they put a different flag and name it something different, then it's it's a different thing. If you look at religion, um, I mean, look at Christianity. The story of Jesus is so fantastically well told it, it has a powerful main character he has a clear narrative he his death is unbelievably compelling and it's filled with meaning and it's not an accident that that's the biggest religion in the world so or if you look at politics now like i thought in the first election and again i'm not going to drag us into politics I be, be careful be careful i will i promise <laughs> but i i really think this is an this feels kind of objective to me and i'm not making any value judgments i just think trump's story in 2016 was was much sharper than it was in 2020 meaning he said i alone can fix it and build the wall and and make america great again and it had a certain consistency whereas keep America great again in the middle of a pandemic was a problematic message. Not that he didn't get 70 million votes, but anyway, so, so this narrative shapes, you know, our lives, our religions, our marriages, our nations, our corporations. And, and it's just, it's absolutely, it's, it's just essential to being a human being. Sure. Sure. All right. And now listeners, I promise the rest of the show is going to be about investing. Um, but thanks for indulging us there because that sets the stage for everything else. Uh, Daniel, but let's move on to your experience as an investor. How sure. did you first come to be interested in investing in? Just tell us like your journey or evolution, if you will, as an investor. Absolutely. And, and I, well, I'm glad you said what you just said about this is going to be very, very relevant. And frankly speaking, and I hope this isn't obnoxious, but, but getting clear on how narrative works in investing has made me a lot of freaking money. And I'm, it just has. And I, I really think that, that it's very worth paying attention to what we're going to talk about. So for me, I've been, I was a member of the Motley Fool community. For, I've been in that community for like 20 years. I've, um, and I noticed that I seem to have like my own personal, I can't do math. No, I, I don't even know what long division is. I'm the mathematically challenged beyond comprehension. So I always figured I must not be good at investing because 
I don't know math, but I often seem to, and I also am not a tech expert. So I, I don't even know how like the internet works or how my phone rings or any of that stuff. But I noticed that I seem to always gravitate toward winning stocks. And I, at one point had, um, this was like 10, 15 years ago, I had all, like 40% of our portfolio in Amazon and Netflix. Cause I thought Bezos and Hastings, I thought these were great companies and I couldn't imagine how they would lose. So long story short, a financial planner talked me out of doing my own investments. He said, I couldn't possibly understand this stuff. I actually had a conversation with a noted um, um, podcaster in finance, and I was, I was pitching him an idea to develop his book. And he told me, you'll never be a good investor. I have all the, the brilliant analysis, and I have teams of guys analyzing stuff. So I, these two guys convinced me that I couldn't possibly be good at this. And I sold all my stuff and I hired a planner and I paid him all kinds of money. And then about maybe seven years later, I looked at what my portfolio was without him and I compared it to what I, I had with him. And I'm paying this guy tens of thousands of dollars, if not more. And my, I annihilated him if I had kept my portfolio. I mean, I'm talking about like over a million dollars, which for me is no joke. I mean, I'm, I'm half a starving artist. Right, right, so right. I was, I was furious. So, but I, nobody had bad intentions. No, they really believed what they were saying. And I really don't think it was an evil thing. I just, so I fired them. And then I took over my own portfolio. And, and in the last three years where I got really dedicated to developing my method of what I call narrative investing, which I mix with a lot of other brilliant investors like yourself, where I get my picks is, and, and my, my results have been like unbelievable. Like I'm up over, uh, I think I've like tripled our portfolio in the last three years and it's a huge deal. And I've done it by sticking to strict principles of what I'm calling, what we're going to talk about of narrative investing. So let's, yeah, let's talk about narrative investing. Um, you know, you, you, we, we've talked before and you say there are three legs to the investment thesis stool. Uh, right. What are they and how does narrative investing fit into that? Sure. So obviously you have financial analysis. You know, you have all the metrics, profit margins, accelerating growth rates, all those things that, that are, are absolutely essential. And then obviously you have the business and the tech analysis. Those are two critical legs of the stool. But then there's, there's the intangibles, leadership, branding, cool factor, um, how inspiring the product is, um, you know, logos, colors, all culture, um, analyzing the leaders. And that stuff is, is very hard to quantify. And I think what, what I... I'm frustrated with as, as an investor have been is and what I would consider the arrogance of value investors. But I do think this is changing now. And so there, I, I've known a lot of value investors and you still see them all the time on, on Seeking Alpha and all these sites where they, they think they can come up with a definitive number that values a stock, which is ridiculous. It's a dynamic thing. It's always changing and it's based on human emotions and, but now you really do see that changing. Um, Aswa, I hope I'm pronouncing this right. Aswath Damodaran, who's a famous value investor at yep. NYU. And he, he, to his great credit, I think he's a, he's a brilliant guy and he works his tail off to, to come up with his valuations. 
but he's often been wrong. And he wrote a book called Narrative and Numbers, where he said, you know, I can make these numbers say anything I want based on the stories I'm telling myself. And Robert Schiller, who's the Yale economist who coined the phrase irrational exuberance, he wrote a book called, I think, Narrative Economics, saying we have to understand the narratives taking place in, in society, in industries and in companies with people. You know, the, the, there's a national mood. You know, obviously things were very different in the roaring 20s versus maybe post-war, you know, post-World War II. And all these stories greatly affect the price of things. So I feel like a guy like me is, is very in tune with all this stuff. And that is, is the, so for me, the, the financial analysis and the tech analysis fit in kind of a wrapper, which is the narrative. And I look at the narrative as the third leg of the stool that wraps up the whole thing and, and helps put it into context and make sense of it. Sure, sure, absolutely. Uh, you know, I feel like we could just like talk about that for like the rest of the hour. Yes. Um, okay, we're, we're talking a lot about stories and stocks and we hear the term story stock all the time. Right. Is, is that what you're getting at? Do you invest in quote unquote story stocks? Is there a difference in investing in stocks with great stories and story stocks? This is a great question. It gets right to the heart of what we're doing. A lot of people get almost angry at the idea of a story stock. And, and that's my one of my main missions as an investor is to create a new definition of what a great story stock really is. So the negative perception of a story stock implies that people are thinking emotionally, that they're, they're not really studying the business, that, that maybe they're inspired by the mission or the charisma of the leader. So I, I wrote a long post not long ago about a company called Solazyme. And Solazyme, like six years ago, they were going. They had biofuel. They were going to. They were going to suck fuel out of algae, and they were going to make cosmetics and fuel and food additives. And they, they, the 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 TAM was going to be like trillions of dollars. Everyone was going to get filthy rich, and the thing went kablooey and and went nowhere. And obviously, people were were telling a a, a false story based on um, dreams and drama and emotion. What I'm saying is a great, stock, a great stock story is really about that you believe it's very simple for the company to do what they say they're going to do. So I, if I could, I want to just talk about really quick the difference between a great story like a work of fiction and a great stock story. Yeah, take the floor, man. Thank you. So in a great story... I'll just use Rocky or the Godfather as an example, because everybody knows these. We want to see the hero suffer. We want to see everything. So, so here's a key point. In any story, in the classic sense, you have a hero and you have an object of desire. Rocky wants to win the heavyweight title. And when he realizes he can't win, he, he just wants to go the distance because then if he goes the distance, he'll know he's not just another bum from the neighborhood. So a great story has a clear objective, but in a, in a work of fiction, we want to torture the main character. Frodo Baggins in Lord of the Rings, that poor guy gets, he gets stabbed by like a giant stone golem. He gets bit by a spider. He's, he gets his finger bit off. He's burnt. I mean, the guy gets tortured and we love that. As investors, we don't want that. We just want to basically the greatest stock story. <laughs> 
would be a guy who says, I have this huge machine. It gobbles up tons of money. And all I got to do is grab the money. And we go, boy, that, and, there, and I have no right. competition. And it's really easy for me to defend those profits. So that's a huge thing about, about the difference between a, a classic story and a great stock story. And, and we want logic and cause and effect, and we want it to be defensible. A great story has a mathematical quality. We believe that, that this guy doing this thing can achieve this great objective. And that's what we want from our investments. We want to believe that, that whoever the CEO is or, the, or the, um, the leadership team, that they can do what they say they're going to do. So that, sure. that's a big important point about stories, great stock stories, and, um, and properly defining what a great stock story is. So do you think you can use a company's narrative to see how it's going to fare into the future? Absolutely. And again, I, I, I am not an arrogant jerk, but I've had a great run in the last, I think, 18 months, by far the best of my career since I started believing in, in this, um, in the ability to predict the future based on narratives. So in, in real life, you'll see this all the time. And, and the reason I'm so passionate about story is it, it goes so far beyond, well, we've talked about this already, but it really comes up in your regular life. Like I once had a friend who was a 40 something guy who decided that um, he was gonna write young adult fiction for girls. And I was like, that's never gonna work. We, we know that you're not a younger girl. You don't know that, you don't love that. It's, and, and it went nowhere. So anyway, that's a, a simple example, but let me give you three quick stories really fast. Um, here's a company I'm gonna tell you about that was a terrible story. And I, I looked at the story and in about, I don't know, 15 to 30 minutes, I was like, this is, this is garbage. Anyone can see this is going nowhere. So the company was called Helios and Matheson. Helios and Matheson had an app that tracked crime in neighborhoods. And somehow, I don't even know how, I might be missing something, but somehow they got a hold of MoviePass. Right, right. And then they decided they were a company that sells subscriptions to movie, to go to the movies and you get unlimited amounts of movie going for a ridiculous price. And the more they sold, the more they lost. And they kept selling millions and millions of subscriptions. And, you, and somehow they were gonna they were gonna scale the business, reduce the offer, make it profitable, and make a ton of money. But but what really triggered me is I looked at the 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 CEO at the time, and he had come from an industry of of nutraceuticals and multi level marketing, and he had like an energy drink. Everything about that story was absolute garbage. So I, I was on, I was telling anyone who would listen to me because it really, that stock ran up. I think it ran up to like 10 bucks a share and a really right. high valuation. Yeah, it, it, had, it had its moment in the sun. Yeah. It was unbelievable. And I'm like, this is nothing. This is garbage. And now it's like, I think it's like, it's worth literally, I think like a thousandth of a penny a share. Yeah, I think, did it, did it go, did it officially go bankrupt or is it still? I looked it up right before I came on and I'm not joking around. I really think the share price is like 0.0001, which again, I'm mathematically challenged. I don't even know what that is, but it's not good. 
there's a there was a story of like uh i think somebody shared this on twitter but like he was a city banker and he bought a movie pass so that after work if he didn't want to go uh out of the city to his home and then come back for like his nightlife you know for for go to clubs or whatever like he would so he bought a movie pass and he would go he would just pick a movie that had been out a while and wouldn't have a big audience and he would just go there to take naps and like when people are like subscribe and he did that every day after work and i'm like you know that's that's like when, when people are subscribing to your movie subscription to go take a naps like every single day like that's that's probably a bad business model it, it was terrible so, so another one that, that was really interesting to me, around in June, I got an email from a friend of mine who's a great investor. And he said, hey, Ruben, one, he said, there's two companies I'm looking at. One was Fastly and one was Slack. But he was more interested in Slack at the time. And he said, what do you think of these? So I looked at Slack. And if you look at the, the, the framework of the company, Stuart Butterfield, the CEO, is indisputably a brilliant guy. He's a philosophy major from Cambridge. He built this apparently incredible product. My wife uses it. My wife's in high-tech sales. She loves it. But when I, I don't use it and I didn't know it, when I looked on the website, I was like, I don't even get what this really is. It's got like channels and it's, and they talk about is a, a replacement for email. And what the website says is that if you buy the product, you'll see a higher return on communication. And I thought, I don't, I don't really know what this is. And I don't really know um, what it does, but they're obviously the product is loved. The CEO is, is a great guy. And, and look, it's very important to, that people realize when we're trying to make, get great investments, we are talking about the best of the best of the best compared to the average schnook. All these companies are amazing. I mean, Slack is a, is, is a multi-billion dollar company and I have nothing but mad respect. But as an investor, I was like, this doesn't feel to me like best of the best of the best, but it feels really good. And I predicted to my friend in the email, I said, this, what I think is going to happen with this is they're going to get bought by Microsoft or, or Salesforce. And sure enough, that's exactly what happened. And again, like my friend who was writing young adult fiction, I do think if you, if you take out all the emotion and drama of life and just look at the most basic things, life is often the most expected thing is what happens. So those two companies, maybe they're kind of extreme examples, but it, it seemed utterly guessable to me that Helios and Matheson would go kablooey, that Slack would do good, but not great. And I consider getting acquired good, not great. It's great. I mean, it's good that it happened. Sure. We don't want a 50% gain. We want, you know, our companies to 10, 20, 100 X over time. Sure. So anyway, so those are the, that was a, a good example and a, a, I mean, a bad example and a mediocre example. Now um, I'll talk about some, some super winners. You'll have to shut me up because I have a couple of them that I'm like so passionate about. All right. Um, did you want to ask me anything there or should I? No, no, no. Let's hear it. Let's hear it. You, you, now you're feeling what my wife often feels, which is just the runaway train. It's just, it's barreling no. down the tracks. No, we're, 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 we're on the track. So let's. <laughs> so, so one of the things I'm absolutely a fanatic about in, in story is simplicity. And this is just a, a critical point that a great story is simple. So if you look at Hamlet, and I promise I'm going to get back to investing, Hamlet, the godfather, 
Rocky, Jaws, these are incredibly simple packages or, or frameworks of the narrative. Hamlet, really all that happens in Hamlet, which is arguably the most psychologically sophisticated, brilliant story ever told. But really all that happens is a ghost shows up, he tells a prince, you got to kill the king, and the prince kills the king. I mean, there's a long journey of him thinking about what he's going to do and, and what the implications are of it. But really, that's the framework. In Godfather, they basically spend 25 minutes in the beginning of the film telling you, this guy's a great guy. He's powerful. He, he controls congressmen. He's got tons of money. He's just an amazingly powerful. He's the most powerful criminal in the world. And then his power is challenged when Salazzo offers him a drug deal. And then he gets, he basically gets shot and his son has to take over. But again, simple, simple stories. And in that simplicity, you can, you can move the whole world. So now one more quick point about why simplicity has value to us as investors and as entrepreneurs and business people. It's just common sense that if you can make the mission, articulate the mission clearly, you're going to inspire your workers, your partners, your prospects, your investors, and because everyone knows what you're doing. I mean, if you're, if you're, um, I was talking about Jocko Willing before drinking his, uh, his energy drink here, fired me up, and he's a Navy SEAL commander. And one of the things he'll talk about is you have to make the mission clear to the soldiers. You have to say, take that hill, kill that terrorist, and get back here. You can't, if you, if you say to them, you know, take that hill, you know, then go and do this other thing and then do this other thing and bring the, and go pick up these other guys. You're adding so much complexity in the system. And the main point I really wanted to make about this is when I've been uh, reading scripts by younger writers and new writers, which I do a tremendous amount of the time, I've been amazed by how much a story is damaged by adding in a character you don't really need or adding in a mission or a storyline you don't really need. So a famous story is that when Steven Spielberg was adapting Jaws, in the movie Jaws, in the book Jaws, Hooper, Richard Dreyfus has an affair with Chief Brody's wife. And Spielberg was like, who needs that? This is a, this is a movie about guys chasing a shark. And that's, that's plenty. So, so by staying focused, he, he made one of the great movies of all time. And it has all kinds of interesting implications that are still true today, especially in the age of COVID, where people don't want to shut the beaches because they don't want to hurt business. Yeah, let's actually. So let me ask you about that, because I think this is actually like the most like uh, and, and you gave me lots of notes and we've talked about investing for a long time. But I think this is the most important point you have. Okay. Like when you look at Amazon and Jeff Bezos, for instance, yeah. like from the very beginning, uh, it's day one has been his message. It's day one. We're, we're not worried about profits next quarter. We're not worried about profits next year. We're going to reinvest. We're going to reinvest. We're going to reinvest right. and grow and grow and grow. And because he did that from the very beginning, I feel like he attracted the absolute right shareholder base from the beginning. Like, you know, imagine if like in 2001, after the tech bubble, uh, you know, Carl Icahn had come in and been an activist investor said, the most profitable thing we have is like books and and um and, and DVDs, and that's what we're going to stick to. We're not going to grow because we can be profitable like this. Or you know, I, I always think like you know, but that never had a chance of happening because Jeff Bezos was so good at communicating the company's mission 
or the companies like Ethos, if you will, like it's day one from the beginning that he had the right shareholder base. Absolutely. And, and again, I think a, such an important point is he realized, start with one thing, get people buying books online. Everybody loves books. It's a passionate subject. And he got that rock solid before he moved on. And that does bring me to a really important point. My style of investing, again, what I'm calling narrative investing, I'm never saying that other people are wrong. Like I used to do that when I was a younger, dumber guy, but now that I'm in my 50s, it's actually a super cool thing that you, you don't have to be so extreme in all your thoughts. This is my style. I, I like there are companies that are, have more complicated products and messages and complex financial services. And I'm not saying that those will definitely fail. I'm only saying that for me, the simpler ones are easier to follow. They're more enjoyable for me to follow. And they're within my, you know, the Buffett circle of competence. Um, but yeah, there's no doubt. Of, but, but, you know, because Bezos took that thing, oh my God, where, you know, to right. like layers of complexity. Right. And then, you know, you, you just think like too, like, um, you know, Blockbuster at a certain point was close to taking out Netflix and they were right, right there on the cusp. And the thing that killed them was Carl Icahn came in and said, no, we need to do this. You know, right. we need to worry about profits right now. And they, they weren't selling the, the big term vision of like what they could do. Like he was worried about profits the next couple quarters. Right. And like, I just wonder like if Blockbuster had been able to tell a better story, like could have that just like stopped that whole thing from happening, you know? But like that story never got told at Blockbuster whereas it did get told at Netflix and and that was like almost the entire difference right there. Absolutely. And, and without a doubt, there's no, no doubt in my mind. What, and Reed Hastings, I'm glad we're talking about him because he's, he's, to me, he, he, there's, he's the patron saint of narrative investing. I mean, he's the greatest. He, he knew from day one he was going to sell flicks on the internet. Netflix, you know, rock solid. He, he, had to, he had to start with DVDs by mail. And then he got rid of those. And he realized all I have to do is, is create an app, put it on every device, get people to sign up, and I can get hundreds of millions of subscribers and generate billions in revenue. People were telling him that he should do licensing, merchandising, that he should have porn, video games. I mean, it was like there were so many ways for him to mess up that story, but he kept it as simple as it could possibly be kept. You know, and look what he built, whereas Blockbuster just had... They had the exact same product for a while. They tried to copy it, but they had all those retail stores that they were stuck with. So doing retail and doing um, apps by internet is a completely different thing. And what, what's so important about this and to investors is because Reed Hastings was so relentlessly focused on hiring the best developers, on making sure the apps always work on every... Like I have never... I have Apple TV. Every time I'm on another app, they ask me to log in. I got to go find my password. I got to do find some code to activate it. I've been with Netflix like 20 years. I've never, ever had a single problem. So that being an expert in that core competence is a competitive advantage. And that, that I think is, is just incredibly important. Sure. Why don't uh, I, I think, <laughs> tell, tell your Shark Tank story. Oh, sure, that sure. I think applies to this. Okay, absolutely. 
So th th this is great. I love Shark Tank. I watch it with my daughter all the time. I just think it's an incredibly valuable show for watching narrative investing in action. So there were these two guys who came on to talk about their business having a party boat. And they were silly guys. They had like, na they had like Navy costumes and they were real clowns, but they were very likable guys. And they came on and they said that they have these party boats and the party boats go out they serve really great food. They serve champagne. People go out for a couple hours, get drunk, come home, and that's it. And you could see the five investors were, were just laughing at them. And then Kevin O'Leary, Mr. Wonderful, says, well, how much money do you make on a party boat each year? And they said 130 grand. And you saw all the investors were like, whoa, that's, this is a legit business. So you have one boat. If you, you come to us for the money, you'll get 500 boats, and you're making real money. Right. And they said, and so the, it was done. Like story is perfect, clean, simple, clear. You guys have the investment. But then they said, wait, 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 you're missing the best part of it. And they were like, what, what's the best part of it? And they said, our food is so good. We're going to have, we're going to serve the food in supermarkets. And you could see the, the, the guys like almost laughing. And they're like, so wait, you're party boats and you're a retail product. And they didn't even understand anything about like shelf space and, and how um, it works to get those premium shelf spaces and advertising and blah, blah, blah. So then they said, but there's one more thing, the piece de resistance of this thing, we're gonna end with a ride in Las Vegas. And, and you just saw the, the Shark Tank guys cracking up about like a party boat ride. They're like, where else to party than Vegas? Right, right. Anyway, they utterly destroyed a great story. And this happens all the time, I think, in, in businesses. And, you know, it's, I think this is the ballpark of, of diversification, the Peter Lynch um, word. It, it definitely, it, it definitely, uh, yeah, it reminded me of that too, just as you're talking. Like, but, okay, so Daniel, how do you tell the difference between like, diversification like that or Amazon when they're going from books to selling DVDs to selling everything on the internet and then going into the cloud and everything else uh like where do you wh when is it like great optionality and when is it diversification right it it's funny that I think a great I'll talk about the stock that that drives everyone crazy good and bad but I, I think that Elon Musk's the first story that he laid out um, for Tesla was one, I'm sorry, I'm looking for it right now. Um, I think was one of the greatest things I've ever seen in, in, in as far as it's, it's honestly, I think it should be studied in business schools. His first blog post about Tesla, which is where I learned about it. And I promise this will answer the question of diversification. No uh, now Elon Musk is, is such a brilliant, incredible human being that it's hard to really use him for anything. But, but this guy's built a $500 billion company and so much of it is fueled by, there's an investor who goes by the name Stock Novice, the Stock Novice, and he calls it the narrative premium. And this is the greatest example in business history that I know of, of narrative premium. So what he said is, we're gonna build a sports car. He said, we're going to use that money to build a more affordable sports car. I mean, more affordable car. He said, then we're going to use that money to build an even more affordable car. And while we're doing that, he said, we're going to provide zero emission electric power options. And, and, and he did every single one of those things. He did the Roadster, he did the Model S, then he's doing the Model Y, and he's putting up those power stations everywhere. Now, it's funny because what tripped me up was that was his story, and I thought it was flawless. 
and I could live with him <laughs> building rocket ships on the <laughs> right. side, even though it's sure. not my favorite thing to see a guy with two passions. But right. when I got out of Tesla was he started digging tunnels. He started making flamethrowers. He started dating, you know, like, like famous electronic dance. That woman Grimes, he was fighting with rappers. He made he solar roots. Solar roofs. He, he called that guy in Thailand a, a pedo guy. Right, right. And that's where I went, I'm out. I, I don't know what to make of this. So for me, he got off the story. So I look at the the, the story as like a, a narrative track. Um, and if things would fit on that track where you're trying to you know revolutionize travel, I can live with a cyber truck. I can live with a, a plane, maybe, you know, so but but I've heard Buffett talk about this, that Amazon, I don't even know what to say about that, because to be honest, I never thought that was possible. I didn't think you could do all those things. So but for me, it's if your mission is is clear and, and each thing fits in accordance with I mean, think about like Rocky. If you think about the movie Rocky, he drinks raw eggs. He goes jogging at four in the morning. Those are on the story. If he decided he wanted to open like a business with his grandpa, that'd be off the story. So I, I hope that kind of answered your question. That sure, way. sure, sure. Thing is either on track or not and related to the mission. Sure. Um, well, let, we, we did not say we were going to talk about this, but let's talk sure. about this, okay? Um, we disagree on the company Square. Yes. Okay, so let me... I'll say I see Square and I see the story as we're going to help small businesses fight against the big box retailers. We're going to give them the same bells and whistles that, uh, you know, uh, the, the, the big chains have, and we're going to, we're fighting for the little guy, but you, which is fine, but you don't see that. So tell where, where do you, uh, I guess, you know, give me your side of it. Sure. That's, it, it, this is a great and really important question. And I want to give a shout out to all my friends who are over 50 now. Because <laughs> I, I really do feel that I really like Jack Dorsey a lot. I mean, how could you not respect all that this guy has achieved and what he's able to do? And one of the big realizations I've made as an investor is that, and I promise I'm going to get to that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I... My big realization is that as an investor, you have to have your, your core criteria. And I really believe it is better to let a great company make a lot of money and not invest in it, even if you kind of believe in it, because it doesn't fit your, your, the, your core criteria. And when you get away from your discipline, that's when, at least in my life, everything has gone kablooey. So for me, in the back of my mind, to be honest, and maybe I'm being fake because Square has done really well, but I, I can't have a CEO who's not 100% committed to my mission. Again, Chief Brody killed a shark. That's what I'm paying you to do. I'm not paying you to go messing around. I don't want to watch the movie with an affair in it. And when you, I just cannot get my head around how this guy works on Twitter in the morning and uh, square at night and no I want you working 24-7 for my money but he's clearly able to do that with a great team and um, so that was a big thing for me but I do feel without a doubt in my mind I know they've tried to sell Twitter that square is his deeper passion 
I know like when I think when Dorsey talks about living in Africa, I really believe he wants to help small business people have a, a you know version of the American dream. I think that's where his passion is. And I know he tried to sell Twitter to Disney. Iger talked about it in his book. So the story of Square, I like a million times better than Twitter for me. But yeah, I agree with you there. Yes. And that's where his, uh, if, if you look at his ownership and his financial incentives, it's, it's you know, it, it lies with Square more, much more than Twitter. Too. Yeah, it, it feels, and the story is so perfect. And to be honest, yeah. every time I go to a small business and they have the Square payment system, I will ask about them just because it, it's fun to talk about. Yeah. And it so just, do I. Drives right, my wife crazy. Yeah. <laughs> Drives my wife crazy. I'll be like, oh, how long have you had Square in? You know, how do you like this? Or, yeah, yeah. And, and they, <laughs> I mean, I have seen universal raves and the things are really nice looking. I mean, they look great. And, and to be honest, it, if he ever sells Twitter, I, I will, I would be, interested in revisiting that. I mean, you've taught me one of my favorite things about you as an investor, if I may quickly divulge. Di- di- yeah, if you're gonna if you're gonna compliment me, we can take it all the time yeah. you want. You, you really have a, a, an expertise and a comfort with bigger stocks. I, my, my pea brain gets tripped up by just size. And I think I've underestimated like, like that Apple and Amazon are like flirting with the trillions. It's just hard for me to get my head around that. Whereas I, I like a nice five billion where I go, okay, I get it. Netflix is, is where when it was like 10 billion, I was like, okay, well, you had a hundred million subscribers, but anyway, sorry. So I, 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 uh, I got us off track there for a second. No, that's all right. That's all right. Um, well, you know, and sometimes I see those, uh, those big companies like Microsoft, for example, yeah. or something like that, like uh, where you, you talked about like the perfect investment story is this machine that just picks up money and when I, when I see like Microsoft or like other big tech companies, I'm like, it's almost like what, that's what they are. They're just this big machine that keeps picking up money. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, you, now granted you limit, I think you limit your upside there, but I also think you, you limit your downside there too. Absolutely. And I, I'm a fanatic. I, I, for me, what really got me in big in the last 18 months is for me, these software companies are the, they're just the best stories I've seen where you have giant margins. You have, once people start using, like I use Microsoft Word, I'm never not using Microsoft Word. That's never going to happen. I will pay the hundred bucks for the rest of my life. I'm not going to learn, you know how great a product would have to be to make me learn all those codes and things that it, it's never, yeah. ever happening in a billion years. Right, right. I, that's how I feel about all these, these cloud SaaS stocks that, you know, once you've installed, you know, um, Salesforce or CrowdStrike or, or Coupa or whatever it is, good luck being the other guy coming in and saying, hey guys, I need you to do something for me. Strip all that out, retrain everybody because my thing is so much better. It's just never going to happen. Right. Especially when these companies are watching everything you do and saying, oh God, they don't like these features. They like these and improving the product. So that's why for me, the narrative of these cloud SaaS stocks is so powerful and the, 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 the ability to defend the moat is so massive that I, I really just went all in on those and super concentrated right now. Sure. Well, it's been a great period for those stocks. Daniel, let's, uh, let's one more question. And uh, again, something we didn't discuss, but like uh, we, we've, we've talked many times online uh, and I know you're a father and this is something I've asked a lot of my guests like, how did you impart your your passion or any investing wisdom on to your children? 
Uh, it's funny. I, I believe like, and this is obviously a huge subject right now, but media literacy, I always, always, I have one daughter and uh, they say the good Lord never gives you more than you can handle. And <laughs> got me right by us not having any more. But um, I, I always sit with her and try to, we watch commercials or we'll hear somebody talk and I'll say what I will say to her, what story is being told here? What is that? What is that person trying to do to you? And so that's the biggest thing for me. I always try to get her to think who's talking, what's like hero and object of desire is just everywhere. It's in business. It's, it happens with her friends sometimes. So for me, that's the big thing. Just always looking at what story is playing out, who wants what, why, and who's trying to oppose them. Well, Daniel, uh, thank you so much for sharing. Uh, let's wrap up our conversation there. Uh, Daniel Joshua Rubin, the author of 27 Essential Principles of Story. I've read it. I love it. Uh, Daniel, where can people find you if they're interested in following you? I'm on Twitter. At, my handle is at Dan Joshua Rubin. I have a website called Story 27, which I'm aggressively developing right now. Um, and I have a little school, if you happen to be in the Chicago area, where when this COVID ends, which we all can't wait for, is uh, I'll be teaching classes and hopefully developing some online programs. And, uh, and I consult on scripts when people have a, like you were saying, when, when people, when that moment comes, like I know you were talking about everyone I meet has a novel or a screenplay. And it, it, I, I think of it as like a bullet in a cowboy's gut, like until you deal with that bullet and, and so I, I, I love working with writers on helping them get, you know, their story told. Well, that's uh, excellent. And we will, uh, we'll link your site in the, uh, our, our accompanying piece on, on our website where we post this uh, podcast. Uh, Daniel Joshua Rubin, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for coming on today and discussing investing with us. Again, I'm Matthew Cochran, lead advisor with 7investing, and we're here to empower you to invest in your future. Have a great day, everyone. A reminder that people on this program may hold positions in the companies that are mentioned. Buying and selling stock carries financial risk, which could include the loss of capital. The views in this program should not be taken as personalized advice. Before acting on any of the information provided, listeners are encouraged to consult a financial or tax professional.